Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah. <laughs> Did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In the sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations. Because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. It's almost impossible to have a surface level conversation with Pharrell Williams. He's the type of person that gets right to the core of the matter. And I'm so happy to have him as my guest today on the Goop podcast. We talked about some of the things that matter to us, the creative process, what it means to be an iconoclast, Black Lives Matter. And while he's world famous for his music, Pharrell's recently launched some incredible projects, notably Human Race, a skincare line that shares a kindred spirit to Goop's idea of clinical beauty and an accelerator called Black Ambition that invests in Black and Latinx students and entrepreneurs. What a joy it is to share space with this thinker. So let's get to my conversation with Pharrell Williams. So, you know, I've wanted to get you on this podcast for quite some time, not just because you're famous and talented and good looking, but because when I've had the honor of getting to listen to you at dinner conversations, your perspective on everything is so iconoclastic and what you take in and observe and then what you're able to formulate in terms of how you are going to take responsibility as a black man in America to shift paradigms, to change the idea of what a husband looks like, what a father looks like what a businessman looks like. It's very profound. And I wanted to ask you a little bit about how that works for you and how you came to, I don't know, and maybe I'm putting words in your mouth. Maybe you don't feel that you have a responsibility, but just to observe you and how you think about things and how you're really changing culture with who you are as a person within the, the walls of your house. I would love to understand that part of you more. Well, you know, it's, first of all, everything that you said is super kind. 
but they are observations. Yes. And there are, there are observations that I oftentimes can't see in myself. I pride myself in not being the greatest. I pride myself in being the one who holds up the mirror for the greatest. Like I'm better as, a, as, a, as, a, as an advisor or a counselor. And as I said, my greatest gift is to hold up the mirror for other people. So I often don't really know my effects. Like people have to tell me what my effect is on a particular sector or on a subject. As it pertains to an entrepreneur, you know, yeah, I have dreams. As it pertains to, you know, being a dad, I want to be the best influence, the best paternal, patriarchal force that I can be on my children because they are not only beautiful human beings, but, you know, they're Black children. And being in America, you have to be aware. They have to know that they're fish and there's, there's such thing as water and they're in it. They need to be aware. And with everything else, I try to just bring like, you know, positivity to the room. I try to bring encouragement to the room. And I guess it's an ongoing job on all these fronts to just try to continue to be someone who's trying to foster as much goodwill as possible. But I don't know that I've ever set myself down and said, okay, you have to check this, check this box, this box, this box, and this box. And here's what it looks like. I've never known what it looks like. So, you know, you talk about like our dinner conversations. They've always been very spirited because while you're saying what you're saying about me, I've always felt like that about you. It's very insightful. And I think you are as curious as you are insightful. And I think that's where we, how I feel like we're, we're a lot alike. We're just as curious as we are insightful. That's and, true. Yeah, man, you are. And I think that's why our conversations go the way they go. We're, we, we just kind of go in these, it's interesting. We all, it always starts out something very simple. And then you and I just go into this whirlwind deep dive of something. And before we know it, the whole entire table, we're all talking about it. And, you know, an hour's passed and then we haven't even started the food. It happens every time. It's good because small talk is a waste of life. I'd rather get right into it, especially when your brain is there. Can you tell me a little bit more about tactically how you are with your kids in terms of, I know you're there, you're so present. And so how does, how do the tactics of how you spend your day with them, how does that move into like your larger philosophy of fatherhood? Well, for a lot of Rocket's life, man, I was working so much that I had to like bring, you know, my wife and him with me. And he was like not home a lot, you know? And I realized I didn't like that. So when Helen was pregnant with the triplets. The, the football team. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, man, we got to do something different. Like, and so the crazy part is they spent the first two and a half years in Los Angeles, which I applaud anybody that is able to raise their children there, but that is just a different biosphere within itself. That's a, Los Angeles should be its own country and nation. It's <laughs> so different. I'd even say dimension, it's another planet. And I just, I, that was too much for me. That was, I, I, it was life by appointment. And you know, everything is so fear of missing out based. 
that I was like, I cannot raise my kids in this, like, because I, I, I can't compete with it. Mm. And it's an amazing world. That's why a lot of, you know, my business is there and your business is there. Like it's a lot of, it's great for business, but it is tough for me to do it there. So now the babies are, they're not babies anymore. They're three and they're going to be four. And so then we, you know, relocated back to Miami, back to like life, what I felt like life felt like for me, especially Mm -hmm. since it's warmer. And man, then, then COVID happens right? The plague happens. So it causes a lot of people to have to be inside and have to do a lot of remote business. And basically what it taught everyone, aside from making the Zoom IPO that's coming up in a couple of days, like incredibly like fruitful. I mean, it- Black acquisition. Right? Like it it just really reminded everybody how much they were missing out in terms of what they could get done on FaceTime, on simple FaceTime. And- for parents, you got to see who really wanted to be parents and who has who just really just delegated all their parental duties to staff and people who work with them or family members, and then the people who really wanted to be invested. And I just got to say, like that's when I became Zuber Dad. You know, like I I I love it. I love really being in it and not just seeing my kids two three times a day, but seeing my kids all day. And then speaking of the pandemic, so I was curious, well, I also want to ask you about Juneteenth and your amplification of that, especially around, especially this time. And so in the middle of COVID, Black Lives Matter really happens and it's been happening, but, and and it's been in existence, but something different happened this time. And I wanted to ask you if it felt different. For you and if so how it felt different because we have been saying as african americans in the african diaspora we've been saying hey there are these purposeful disadvantages and blockages in the system it's systematic and one of those things okay there's education right disproportionate access to edu- education disproportionate access to representation which is what the founding fathers of this nation fought for, no taxation without representation. Black people never got that. But the other pillar is healthcare. So when disproportionate access to healthcare and medicine. So when COVID kicked- Also environmental, environmental racism, nutrition, you know, if, okay. if, yeah. Yeah. On and on. So when, when the plague happened, I think America really got to see the disproportionate access to healthcare and that we were getting it way more than anyone else. And that the treatment was not as rampant as it should have been for us like it is for everyone else. When your healthcare plan is, reads much more like a, a tricky labyrinth and you're already on subsidized healthcare, which was cut in half, by the way, a lot of people didn't realize that, like a lot of federal subsidies were cut in half. It, it hit us. So yes, it felt very different. It felt very different because for the first time I started to see it in the news, they were starting to write about these things that had been around for the longest time. And I was happy to see that like the general news cycle was starting to consider the fact that, you know, people of color were suffering at larger rates and not just because we're not careful. So that did change. In terms of the Black Lives Matter movement, which by the way, is just a very true notion, right? Our lives do matter. 
there started to be this sensitivity where I hadn't seen it before. Like, you got to think, people have been eating Uncle Ben's rice for the longest time. They never had a problem with that. They had been eating, you know, Miss Butterworth and Syrup and Aunt Jemima, and they've been doing this for the long, they've been watching Little Rascals. They never had an issue with that, right? But all of a sudden, I'm starting to see people start to pay attention. And we're starting to see more advocates and allies than we have ever seen. And that is one of the things I think Black Lives Matter can really put on the board and say, that notion has totally put that point on the board. The people in the streets were more than Black. There were LGBT, LGBTQIA, there were First Nations people, there were Asian, there were white, there were Jewish, Indian, you name it, they were out in the street with standing in solidarity with the black people. That felt different. Mm. You know, the news started to care about it and report it. And it's crazy because you saw how the, this administration has carried on with immigration and just all kind of crazy stuff that they were Do you doing. think that's why it took hold in a way? I think, I think our nation is just waking up to who it's always been, right? There was a black president and everyone's like, see, we're not racist. We had a black president. We did. And he did a lot, but it's a lot that he wasn't able to do because he did not have the bipartisan help that he needed to get it done. But he got a lot done. And when he got in there, that caused us to, you know, really propel the anti-folks to really galvanize. And the people who really already had something deep down seated inside them to, to feel really comfortable with the bigotry, really comfortable with the division. I mean, they hailed it. A lot of those, uh, listen, so they'll look over their shoulders and they won't believe how much they carried on. It's our nation. It's who we've always been. Like if you think about it, right? We celebrate this thing called Thanksgiving, right? But isn't it Thanksgiving? Trail of Tears does not sound like a Thanksgiving dinner to me. When you're giving blankets to, to chiefs that have tuberculosis in them and all this crazy, just crazy. You know, you think about the fact that like, how about this? I learned this from this incredible, important writer that I think you need to get to know. His name is Michael Harriet. What do you think the first, why do you think Wall Street is called Wall Street? Is it something to do with the slave trade? That's exactly why. What do they stand against? Oh, gosh. So they were the first commodity to be traded on Wall Street. See, when you really just look or you know what, we're like, yeah, we're so proud because I am proud. I love my country now. <laughs> I love my country. It's where I was born. Yeah. It, it needs work. I love my mom and my dad. They need work. We all need work. Right. We all need work. Right. The nation needs work. It's a beautiful place. It was a beautiful place before. The, the, the pilgrims and the founders got here, right? When our First Nations brothers and sisters were here, it was a beautiful place, right? But then they get here and, you know, they implement all these things. And we're so proud of all of it. We're proud of, you know, Mount Rushmore, but really every last one of those presidents, they did some good things, but then what they all have in common is they all implemented something that really hurt the Native American. And guess where Mount Rushmore is on? It's on sacred Indian soil that was never supposed to be touched, the Black Hills. 
okay? This is who we are. But we have the potential to be so much more. There's so much untapped potential when you think about us as Americans. We got a lot of work to do, man. It's like, how do you have a Statue of Liberty and then you're coming down on the immigrants? I don't get it. If you have such a problem with them being undocumented, document them. Don't check their kids. I think there's 545 kids where they have not been able to find their parents. That shit is crazy. It's very, very dark. Look, I love my nation because of its progression, but I'm really in love with its untapped potential. That's what we need. We just got to get to that place and we got to be realistic, man. We got to stop making up holidays and stuff. So what I think we should do for the third Thursday in November is it should be Family Indigenous Reflection Day. Right? Yes. Just so you because if you say Thanksgiving, you got to be honest and say it was Thanksgiving. Just leave that part alone. Let's just say Happy Family Indigenous Reflection Day. Well, this is the point that like we're being offered all of these opportunities to strip all of these filters off that we never even knew we were looking through, right? We weren't educated around, or we, you know, it very conveniently falls out of our history books, et cetera. And then we just go and we build our lives and we don't take the time and say like, what the fuck does that mean? Like, no. So it's such an important recalibration that's happening. Yeah. I mean, look, and I love our beloved February month, the shortest month of the year, Black History Month, right? But why do we keep teaching history two two different ways? Like, Black history is American history. There's no talking about our history without Black history. Yeah, why do, you, why do we keep like putting it in one month? Like, dude, teach the shit the whole well, year. Right, weave, weave the whole truth into the textbooks. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. Last year, I had the opportunity to list my Montecito guest house on Airbnb. This was part of a special project that Airbnb spearheaded to build connection and to make the world feel a little less lonely. It was such a pleasure to get to know my Airbnb guests over dinner and share my home with them so that they could rest and recharge on their trip. But typically, the beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Being a host on Airbnb is great for those who travel frequently, have extra space, or own a seasonal home. If you've stayed at an Airbnb, you know the unique experience it offers. And now you can share that same experience with others in addition to earning additional income on the side. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. If you could hear one song for the first time right now that you know and love, what would it be? You know, that's a really tough question because there's so many songs that I'll never forget. And I miss this. And perhaps I shouldn't like, maybe I should just like not have another edible. I mean, it's been like almost (laughs) six months, six months, almost like six, seven months now. Maybe I shouldn't have another edible for five years to get myself back to this place. And maybe I shouldn't have any wine or anything. Because you just reminded me that when I would hear songs pre being a grown up, 
I would feel the release of endorphins. And I would feel that way. You said one song, but I cannot just do one song. That's okay. I felt that way when I first heard, you know, Tribe Called Quest? Of course. I know, Margot. I know you know. <laughs> when I first heard Benita Applebaum, I, when I finally got my hand on what at that time was a, you know, a CD, <laughs> a lot like my grades in school. When I first got my hands on that CD, I listened to that day in and day out. And literally, I was high. I was high. I, could, I couldn't believe the chord progression. I couldn't believe the way the bass just meshed and lifted the chord so well. I felt that way with Donny Hathaway's Take a Love Song. I felt that way with this guy named Junior. This is when I was really young, a song called Mama Used to Say. I felt that way with a song by this gentleman by the name of Tom Brown, and it was called Jamaica Funk. I felt that way with Michael Jackson's Human Nature. I felt that way with, there was a group called The System in the 80s. They had a song called Don't Disturb This Groove. I felt that way with the Beach Boys Sail On Sailor. <laughs> uh, I felt that way with Come Running To Me by Herbie Hancock. What do you think the message was to you in the adrenaline? I feel like it was the universe connecting with me, telling me that like there was something in it for me. And if I wasn't able to do that for people, that the, the idea that I had discovered that music could do that to people was, was something that I needed to grapple with and sort of figure myself out. Mm. And I'm, I won't get emotional here, but I'm so grateful to God that, that he gave me that. I'm so grateful that the universe gave me that. I mean, I'm nothing, but the way that those musicians have made me feel in my life, and there's so many more. I ended up making a baby playlist just now. Um, but there's the way that music can make a person feel. I'm just so and, grateful. Yeah, transcends anything. And now you're that for so many people. I mean, you have delivered that. You've made people feel that. You've you've given people that resonance with whatever that feeling is, God, you know, through your music and your genius. It's incredible. How do you know when you're writing a song, if it's for you or if it's for someone else? Usually when I'm like writing a song, I'm thinking of someone else. It's kind of the other way around. People around me will say, oh, no, no, no. You cannot give that song to that person. That's for you. Oh, okay. I literally have to channel other people in order to make something that interests me because when it sounds like me, I get bored and I can't really feel the high. I feel the high when I go, wow, when people hear this, you know, this person's going to kill it. So if you think about all of my best songs, they were always songs that I did for other people. Like what? Give me one. I mean, Happy was for CeeLo. Mm. The song Frontin', I was writing because I really wanted... Prince. I wanted to work with Prince. Wow. Of course, I was not good enough for him. <laughs> Sweet. Um, so we, never, we never worked. I don't think he was necessarily interested. And a lot of the stuff that, you know, the, the stuff from the first Justin Timberlake album that I worked on, Chad oh, and I, yes. that was like for, for, for Michael. And it, never, it didn't end up going to me, but it ended up going to Justin. 
And it was where it was supposed to be, right? That's where it was written. You know, meaning it was written that it would end up in Justin's hand because Michael heard that and was like, yeah, that's cool, but I want something more like what you did with Noriega. I want Super Thug. And I was just like, what? <laughs> I was like, you know, what's interesting about that is that if you're writing, like if you're a channel and you're of creation and it's coming through you, it's almost like if you're writing it for somebody else, you have a latitude. It's almost like I, just thinking about it and watching my ex-husband write music and the pressure that he feels to write music for himself. I sometimes, you know, I wonder if that's not, if the pressure one feels doesn't in some way limit or affect the process in it. You know, I, I just wonder if writing for other people opens up energetically or that, that lack of sort of responsibility that it has to be you if it creates more creativity. I think, yeah, maybe that there's, you know, what's interesting. That's exactly, I think my pressure is kind of similar to that, which is, have I done that before? If I felt like I've done it before or too often, it won't, it won't have the dopamine in it. You know, it won't have the, you know, the, the serotonin and endorphins that triggers that I needed to have. The other thing is a lot of my best stuff is like when I'm like, man, I'm, you know, I'm out. I ain't got nothing today. I'm, let's pack up. And then right then something comes out. So yeah, I think there's a, there is a, for different people, it's different kinds of pressure. Maybe for Chris, it was about like, you know, being his best self. He's a very cerebral genius. I think for me, it was always about knowing that I don't have anything left. And if I'm channeling someone else, those are the two biggest, greatest motivators. No one's ever asked me that before, by the way. Where you just- Really? People just go, so where does it come from? <laughs> right? But a more, a, more, a more dialed in way to ask is the way you did, right? Like what makes it come out? So it's almost like, it comes out of abdication, humility, and then possibility of generosity because it's for somebody else. Yeah. I have chills right now. <laughs> I had to ask you about music because, I mean, I could spend the whole hour obviously asking you about music, okay. but for the purposes of this conversation, music is what gave you your platform, mm -hmm. right? It's what made you famous. It's what gave you this platform to do all of these incredible things that you're now doing. Mm -hmm. And the first thing I wanted to ask you was, do you think that there's some intrinsic characteristics of artists that make entrepreneurship feel like an extension? of the artistry. You see so many artists become entrepreneurs. It's like such a yeah, it's intuitive a next step, right? And it's not just because for a lot of us, it's not just because, hey, I have a platform, like, so I better go do a business. It feels like it comes from the same DNA for me anyway. And I just wondered if you had any thoughts on that or insight into like the, how close an artist and entrepreneur are like, are the characteristics similar? 
So I think that like when it's authentic and it's not just purely about making money, I think I think we're all pluralists at the end of the day. We naturally are, right? But we've come from a society that over the last 50, 60 years in America, they keep trying to in, instill this one track mind focus thing. And that's not who we are. We do many things, you know, there are kids who skate, but at the same time, like they love like math or want to be a scientist. One of the, the guys that, the, the guy Rodney that, that made all of like the kickflip tricks is like, I think he's like, he's a scientist now, you know? Like we're all pluralist. And I think it's just like a natural thing for, for an artist, one who has chosen a medium or different mediums or disciplines to express themselves to actually make a business out of it or something else at the same time. Why would you not want to apply that artistic lens on some new product process or experience or design? Why wouldn't you? But what do you think we're trying to do? Like why, why keep going into the next concentrical? You were not going to simply use your thespian genes and your good genetics, right? That was not going to be it for you. No. Of course you got to do goop. Of course. Because you have more self-expression that you want to share with the world. And if you can make a business out of it, well then that's the American dream. Now that's the American dream. It's just not afforded to everyone. Right. What can we do to change that? How can we bring the possibility of the American dream back to the disenfranchised? Well, one way is Black ambition. Yes. And I, okay, good. So let's talk about this. Okay. So you've started this amazing prize. Yeah. Surprise. Yep. Where you're going to identify Black or Latinx founder. Or yeah. founders, right? So the prizes range from two hundred and fifty all the way down to fifteen thousand. Okay. Right, two hundred and fifty k. And the notion was, we as Black people, right? And I think this is the case with all minorities, but you know, right now this is Black ambition, Black and Latinx. We don't have enough of a voice in America. We don't have enough of a voice because we don't really represent much on the pie chart. We don't because we don't have enough businesses. So we need, we, need, we need a program and even more programs to foster black owned businesses mm-hmm. so that we will have proportionate access to education, proportionate access to healthcare and medicine, proportionate access to representation and legislation. Right now we're less than 3% of private equity and VC founders, right? But that slice of the pie should be much bigger. And once we have, you know, these really beautiful burgeoning, blossoming black communities where a lot of things are owned by the culture, then you'll see that our kids are getting better education. They're going to great schools. Their educational careers will be enriched. You'll see that they have great access to healthcare and, and medicine. And finally, we'll have more representation. And so that's what we need. 
I think that's what all the minorities need. How do people apply for it? So there's the Black Ambition Prize, and then there's the HBCU Prize. So the HBCU Prize, obviously, you know, you're, you'd be enrolled in the HBCU, you know, Historic Black College and University, and you would apply and for the various prizes that we launch, and we're doing them at 10 different ones to begin with, right? So there'll be, you know, Black Ambition Howard, there'll be Black Ambition Spelman, there'll be Black Ambition Norfolk State. And so what happens is we're launching all these prizes. There'll be prize winners. And the prize winner will not only get their, you know, their, their, their prize, their, their money toward their, their idea, but they also get this amazing mentorship. And if you ask the less than 3% Black founders in this, in this country what they've needed the most, at first you would assume that they would say it's the capital. Capital is hard to come by but there are some who are lucky to get it. But once they get it, the hardest part is making the business work because having a great idea and running a business is two different things. Tell so, me about it. Right? We think the mentorship is probably the most important, right? And then once they get that, then you start to see prizes being launched all over the place, like whack-a-mole, except you're not beating the black people down, you're lifting them up. And then you see this amazing strategic scaffolding that's called mentorship happening all over the place. When we own more companies and whether we're owning a company that is, that is big or we're in big senior leadership positions of a company, you'll start to see our kids do really well. And it starts to change the paradigm for black people in this country. Do you anticipate this shift being able to be a reality in this next generation? Oh yeah, because the millennials and the Gen Zers are not playing any games. And you know what? The beautiful species that is called women, they're not playing any games either. And I love it. I love <laughs> it, love it, love it, love it. It, it. it like, I love women. I think they are not only beautiful and brilliant, but they have an intuition that is second to none. And I love you all for that. It's, it's amazing to sit and watch. Hmm. That's, I think that's true. And, that's, and it's nice to, that we're entering a time where the, partic- the gifts that are particular to the feminine essence, no matter what gender you are, that those gifts are starting to be celebrated as well. And mm-hmm to be accepted, I think, for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I think it's high time that we, you know, the nation shift to matriarchal. We need more matriarchal ener- energy. Well, look at, look at the countries that have women running them, how, how they've coped with the pandemic, for example. I mean. That, that's different. I mean, it's, it's night and day. It's like a woman having the nuclear codes. <laughs> And I'm not saying that there are not some evil women out there. It's, they're human beings, right? But, for the, for, but when, when, when you know what it takes to make a life, you're going to think twice about taking a life. You know, as men, we'll never know what it's like to walk around with life in our bodies, being responsible for another set of organs, including a heartbeat. That's not our own, that we have to nest and keep safe until giving birth. We'll never know what that's like. We'll also never know what it's like to have to do our jobs 
and not look like anything is going on or that our bodies are going through any kind of distress once a month, we'll never know what that's like. You see, so when you're able to endure that for a lifetime and also know what it's like to make a, chi make a child, whether you have or you haven't, you have the organs that give you that ability, of course you're going to be a bit more psychic and a bit more instinctive than us men. And for that reason, I reveal you. That's so beautiful. Thank you for saying that. I think I speak for all women when I say any women, woman who hears you say that will feel seen and understood in a way that is very impactful. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. When it comes to putting together your home, a great rug can make all the difference. A rug is really what pulls a room together and creates harmony. Nordic Knots offers a curated collection of rugs and timeless, high-quality essentials. They collaborate with leading designers and are the insider rug brand gracing some of the world's most beautiful homes. They have a wide-ranging collection, but we'll just talk about a few favorites today. The luxurious Grand Collection is known for its simple design, stunning colors, and high-quality wool. But if you're feeling a bit more bold, their designer collaborations are made with world-renowned designers and interior architects. Their Goodweave certified rugs are handmade and woven in all natural materials, like their super soft and beautiful New Zealand wool. At Nordic Knots, they make the process of rug shopping easy and enjoyable. And they always offer fast and free shipping from the US. To explore their rug collections, head to nordicknots.com. Use promo code INNERCIRCLE to get free rug samples. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. And then I want to ask you about your new venture, which I love. I've been using, can you tell? But now my son stole it all from me. I'm going to buy more. This is a perfect microcosm, right? It's like this skincare that mother and son are both so excited about and using. Wow. I can't even believe Moses is used oh, like fully, fully crazy. How and old is Moses now? He's 14. That's crazy. So, so was this the intention? I mean, you call it human race. So I imagine it's for everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. I mean, you know what it is? Once I, when I, when I first got with Adidas, that's the funny part. When I first got with Adidas, you know, I was in an interview and they were like, okay, you're with Adidas, but you're, you're an artist, not an athlete. And I remember saying, you know, I think Adidas should work with athletes, artists, architects, activists, academics, mm -hmm. always. And why? What's wrong with that? And the person was like, yeah, but I mean, it's a sport brand. Like, what sport do you play? And I said, I play for the human race. And when the, the designer heard that, you know, we all got inspired and just were like, okay, human race. And so that's the, started making kicks, you know, that said human race on it, right? So we started making shoes. And when we realized like the shoes said human race on there and like, you know, they were, they were pretty pricey because they were like a premium, like at a premium level. I was like, oh, people will pay money for these positive affirmations and these sort of, you know, mirror, mirror moments for them to recognize as a species that we are inspiring. 
the good parts of us. It's inspiring. So once we saw that, then I started just thinking about it as a brand period. And that's when human race was born. And then I was like, okay, I want to just, I want to go into the health and wellness space. And so whether it's apparel and footwear or, you know, and everyone kept asking me about my, you know, routine for my skin. I was like, you know, maybe skincare. And so this is kind of like the second sector that we're going into. And I just category by category, I just want to look at the health and wellness space. Yeah. It's, it's a good, it's a very, I, I love the space. Well, obviously, but I love it because it requires participation. You know, it requires one to take responsibility for who they are in their lives for participating in, you know, making time for themselves, which, you know, time obviously is the hardest thing to come by. Maybe not so much in the pandemic, but. Well, you um, got to budget, you got to budget your time. Yeah, you got to budget your time. So this product, I, I, it's so beautiful. I love the packaging. I love the sustainability. It's Thank refillable, right? So you, so we're not using the, the plastic one time. What I love is when I started Goop all those years ago, clean beauty was not really a thing and clean beauty didn't work. You know, if you went to the health food store and bought a moisturizer, it, you didn't get the results from it. And now the science has developed. And, not, and by the way, the consumer is shaping the market so much because the consumer wants what we call it Goop clinical skincare. So mm -hmm. it's clean, but it works. It's really efficacious. Yeah. So you, I, I love that you got ahead of this and you banned, you know, you followed, you didn't, you go further than the EU 1300 banned ingredients. Yes. yes. So tell me a little bit about the R and D process. So when putting it together, I put, we have like a human race, we have a whole bunch of small teams a lot of them, we just said to ourselves, if we're going to get in the space, we have to make it better than we found it. And we have to be friendly to the other brands, right? The ones that are doing well, the ones that we can learn things from, we got to be friendly to them. We, we're going to be competitive, which just, it's like, we're running the race, <laughs> the human race, we're running the race and we're not looking to our left and our right to beat anyone. We're looking to our left and the right to see if we can help, see if we Same. can ask questions. Same. But we are running our asses off forward, <laughs> you know, so we're going to push things forward. That was our, our thing. And at every turn, because we were building it from scratch and I had no investors, it's all me. I'm like, you know what? I don't care how long it takes. Let's do everything more than right. So let's not animal test, you know, let's use far more PCR than we do virgin plastic. Let's make sure we're, we're refillable. Let's make sure that we, we go beyond what Europe allows. And what I wanted to do when we were building these small teams is go get the best and what I felt like was the best in the space. And these people who maybe have worked at other companies, bigger companies, um, but couldn't quite get them to because they're big corporations and it takes a lot to swing their legs forward to take these big steps. Oh, yeah. Come to human race where we are small, agile, nimble and ready to go and hungry for change. Because we recognize that we don't live in a country. We live in a like these are not this is not a country. This is a company, America. Right. And these are not citizens. They're consumer based. And the consumer base has the power. 
consumer base is waking up. So they have all these concerns. So with every, at every turn, if we were able to take something further, we did. And the brand launched as soon as we got all of those boxes checked. So I tried to bring experts in the field who had ambitions to push the industry forward, but maybe couldn't where they were before. And that resulted in us having something that is super clean, vegan, and you know, even down to the design, because we knew that when people pick up a product, you know, in the in the in the the bottles, like I wanted them to know that we considered the way that your hand was gonna pick it up and what you were gonna feel. Mm. From the color to the texture. Color of the heart chakra. That's right. What do you want people to feel when they use it? I think it's interesting you said you guys are clinical. I like that a lot. That's you really can steal it. Uh, no, no, no. I would never. Please go right ahead. I would, I would always say, you know, the Goop founder taught me this. <laughs> For us, I think we wanted it to work beyond their expectation. And we wanted you to have a physical sensation. So we're sensations based. So not only do our products work, you must feel a sensation. Man, when I was a kid, there was just... You're probably too young for this, but there was a company called York Peppermint Patty. Um, when, yeah, please. I'm older than you. No, you're not. We keep having this debate. So the person would, <laughs> it's so funny. It, they're ridiculous commercials, but it was genius. I remember. When I bite into a York Peppermint Patty, I get the sensation of being on, <laughs> I mean, literally like, <laughs> To all the people on this platform watching this right now, when you get off, you got to go on YouTube and just type in <laughs> your Pepper Patty commercials of the 70s. They are hilarious, but they're genius because they knew that they were communicating the minty feeling and sensation that people got when they broke it open and smelled it and when they tasted it. I want anything that I make that is clinical to do that to someone. I don't want you to just trust that you need to wait to see how you feel in 15 minutes or over the next week. I want you to feel the sensation the minute that you open the jar, the minute that you open our packaging. By the way, our packaging has Braille on it because how can you be a human race without having that on there? And how do you think about all of your various ventures? I mean, it's interesting because when, when I think of you, so there are certain people who have a platform, who do lots of different things. Mm -hmm. And I think what's different about, well, like why, because I was thinking about why does everything that you do feel so good and like just another iteration of who you are and so authentic, whether it's a Chanel fanny pack that thanks a lot, I bought, I couldn't help myself. Thank you. Or an amazing sneaker or a song or skincare. There is an inherent authenticity to everything that you do and how it's expressed. Mm. And, you know, when people talk about marketing in, in today's day and age, and they talk about you market by creating culture. I think you are the, the example of what it means to create culture because it comes, it seems to come from this, place. And so I just, I would love to know why everything you do from your opinion feels so cohesive to us. 
as consumers? I don't know. I promise you, there's not a like a guidebook that I have, you know. No, but it's coming from within you somehow. Mm-hmm. It's not conscious. No, it's not conscious. It's more like, it's more instinct. I think it's just the way I'm hardwired. I want, I want you to feel elevated when you buy my sneakers. Mm-hmm. I want you to feel good when you buy, you know, the human race basics. So how would you define someone that creates culture? Thought leaders, people who rise to the occasion when we need the right film, people who rise to the occasion when we need the right awareness as an activist, people who rise to the occasion when we need the right law that helps people, that's justified, that justifies people's existence and protects them. People who rise to to the occasion to do things for other citizens when they don't know them. Like that's, that's how you create culture. To me, the people who create the waves of culture to me. Do you need to break something in order to create culture? If it is, if it's fixed and unfair, Hmm. then it needs to be broken. So what, so the waves you're saying, the waves are created by other people and then you ride the wave. I ride the, I ride the, the waves in between where there's a, where there's a crack and there's nothing there. I like to fill in the cracks. That's what I do. I'm good at that part. You're grout. I am grout. You are the chicest grout. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for listening to my conversation with Pharrell Williams. As always, I walked away very inspired. You can learn more about human race skincare at humanrace.com and Black Ambition at blackambitionprize.com. That's a wrap on today's episode. If you have a second, please rate, review, and hit subscribe if you haven't already. Don't forget to share the Goop podcast with a friend. And in the meantime, for more, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast. <laughs>